full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. What in heaven's name is going on here? He tried to rob the payroll, Randolph. He attacked me in broad daylight. I didn't do nothing, man. This guy bumped into me. I did not. You knocked me down and tried to grab my briefcase. Yeah, but it was an accident, man. An accident? Really? What's going to happen to this man? We're going to book him. An assault, attempted robbery, and resisting arrest. Hey, man, I'm innocent. This guy bumped into me. I was trying to give him his briefcase back to him. You're from a broken home, of course. If we was broke, so what? You have a history of juvenile arrests, I presume. Drug abuse, reform schools, state prisons, and all that. Yeah, I ain't talking to this guy. I want a lawyer. Is there a lawyer in the house? That man is a product of a poor environment. There's absolutely nothing wrong with him. I can prove it. Of course there's something wrong with him. Probably been stealing since he could crawl. Given the right surroundings and encouragement, I'll bet that that man could run our company as well as your young Winthorpe. Are we talking about a wager, Randolph? You'll recognize that bit from the legendary 1983 comedy Trading Places, where Eddie Murphy is literally plucked off the streets and taught how to become rich on the movement of numbers. Orange juice crop reports have since never been the same. 1983, coincidentally or not, is also when my guest, Jerry Parker, then all of 26, answered an ad in the Wall Street Journal posted by Richard J. Dennis of CND Commodities. He said he's accepting applications for the position of Commodities Futures Trader to expand his established group of traders. Mr. Dennis and his associates will train a small group of applicants in his proprietary trading concepts. Prior experience in trading will be considered but is not necessary. Fast forward three decades later, turtle trader Jerry Parker is head of Chesapeake Capital, which at its peak was $2 billion large. Jerry, welcome to Full Disclosure. Uh, thank you, Robin. Thanks for Funny, having me. Funny, you look nothing like Eddie Murphy. <laughs> or Dan Aykroyd, for that matter. Or Dan Aykroyd, for that matter. I, I am fascinated by this because you know the, the, some, the comparisons obviously are a stretch, but um, this movie is a pop culture classic. It's on Comedy Central or USA Network on Endless Loop. And I look at your story. You are, in many respects, in in smart money circles, a legendary uh, tra uh, trader in the in the trend following and managed futures space. But you told me that in 1983, um, when you're you're here in Richmond as a, a certified public accountant, you really had nothing going on, and uh, you you just read on the side. And this was in no ways preordained for you to become a famous trader. Very true, uh, and that's probably the. The limit of the comparison with Eddie Murphy is that I had not a lot going on at the time, and but uh, we were giving some great information and uh, great training and four years in a sort of pretend environment, uh, nothing but positive feedback that uh, helped me uh, with my trading career. Well, set the stage for me. You in your, you're in your early 20s. You go to UVA. You grew up in, in Lynchburg, Virginia? That's right. Uh, the children of, uh, your, you said your father ran a gas station. Your mother was a homemaker. That's right. Uh, your your family is like a, an agricultural tobacco growing family, so college was a very new experience for you. Oh yeah, I was uh, probably the first person in my family to go to college. Um, my parents were very interested in making sure their children went to college, uh, even though they didn't. Um, my mom was the uh, valedictorian of her high school class, but she didn't go to college. So the wow. the tradition and the uh, was not there, but uh, they made sure that. Um, all of, all of uh, their children went. Did you grow up poor? No, no. We didn't feel like we were poor. We uh, grew up with all we needed, loving parents and a great family and um, a lot of opportunities. 
Now, you did go to UVA. Do you remember the instruction that your father gave you? You were just expected to come out and get a job and not be in the kind of the working class position that your father was in? Oh, definitely. I remember working at the gas station and, uh, you know, when in high school and asking um, if I could have a tool set because I wanted to learn how to repair things. And he said, no, no, no tool set for you. And um, when I graduated, he wanted me to get a job very quickly. He was very, didn't want me laying around the house. Were you interested in finance and accounting? How did you pick this as a major at UVA? Oh, I just picked accounting because the job prospects were probably the best at the time. But I was always interested in the markets and trading, the game, the gamesmanship of it, um, the intellectual pursuit of trading. And of course, in the beginning, it was um, stocks. And that's all I knew. It's what sort of the mainstream stocks. But then over time, I learned about futures and currencies, commodities. And I thought, okay, this could maybe be even better than stocks only. You've said before that in that in that boring first job of yours as a public accountant that, quote, the Wall Street Journal was my master's degree. You really found escapism in the Wall Street Journal? So miserable was your life, Jerry, that... Yes, it was miserable. No, I, sometimes my friends would go out you know, uh, on the weekends and I'd say, oh, well, I'll meet you out. I haven't finished the Wall Street Journal reading yet. So, yeah, I was intrigued by this and this sort of... Um, Thinking and writing, and um, whether it was the opinion page, the op-eds, or the commentary on the markets and stuff. So yeah, I was really, really in love with the Wall Street Journal. You're not in love with auditing, though. <laughs> Fortunately, I had a lot of free time on the after-tax season to read about my love of the markets and start developing my strategy and philosophy on how I would approach the markets. So you also read my all my old alma mater, Business Week, uh, back in the day, and you told me that there was this profile in the early '80s of uh, Richard Dennis, the famous Chicago trader. Um, he he re- you remember him as the barefoot trader because he wore no shoes and socks while he was at his Quotron machine, and that image was kind of emblazoned onto your memory. And at the same time, I found it paradoxical. You know, me being the the metaphorical genius that I am, I was, at the same time you're considering a job at Dean Witter, which uh, was back back then part of Sears, if I'm not mistaken, and so it was Stocks and Socks that it was called. So you're at this fork in the road, literally, do I go do I go barefoot when this guy puts out an ad in the Wall Street Journal, or do I go Stocks and Socks? You very nearly accepted a job to go to Dean Witter. I accepted it, and then once I got the job with Richard Dennis in the Turtle Program, I had to unaccept. Um, but uh, answering an ad in the Wall Street Journal, of course, is not uh, the most obvious thing. Uh, but having read an article about Richard Dennis and the title, I, I believe, being The Barefoot Trader, uh, gave me some confidence that this was truly a legitimate uh, job offer and program. And even back then, I was able to sort of understand that Dean Witter would probably be mostly a sales job, and the Richard Dennis experience could possibly turn into a knowledge transfer unlike any that I could ever imagine. I was going to learn from people who had made a lot of money in the markets and who had formulated a strategy that, according to them, was teachable. And one of the things that I believe they said in the training class was, this is not something you would ever learn in school. This is a type of information that people keep secret, not divulge in business school or in a, in a company uh, training sessions. So, so re- relatedly, though, with one of the regional brokerages here, was it Wheat First? 
Wheat First or Wheat uh, Wheat Bank or Wheat First Butcher Singer. I don't know what iteration it was in the early 80s. But you were hosed for a gig, uh, a commodities trading assistant. They said you were unqualified, right? Well, I, w- I did apply in the summer of 83 uh, for a when job. When trading places came out. Yeah, for a job as a commodity trading assistant. And I was very disappointed that I did not get that job. And obviously, for whatever reason, I... Maybe it was the best thing that ever happened Oh, to you. by far, in a way, the best thing <laughs> that ever happened. Never so. mind the birth of a child or none of that, Jerry. Oh, no, Getting no, no, hosed no. by uh, wheat, wheat first. Was... Twisting my words. <laughs> <laughs> the liberal media conspiracy, Jerry. Well, so walk me through the process. Uh, you answered the application with a resume, which really experience mattered least. Uh, he wanted to make sure he had smart people, Richard Dennis. But you also got a true and false test in the mail? That's right. So a 1,000 people applied in the fall of 1983, and everyone received a true-false test. And we had a couple of weeks to answer these questions and send it back in. So I kept the test as long as I could, and um, I was pretty good at taking tests, and I thought I did pretty well on the test. And it just so happened that my burgeoning philosophy of trading and what I'd read and experienced in trading sort of coincided with their philosophy. What were they asking you? Uh, what kinds of questions? Psychological questions. Uh, how do you think about life? Um, maybe some trading questions, uh, technical questions. That Are they I'm, kind of binary questions? Um, for instance, it takes money to make money. And so the answer to that, I would think, would be false. <clears throat> they wanted people who... Um, I think, and I think the philosophy behind that is that you want someone who, if you ask them, well, have you done well? Have you made money? No, I haven't made any money because, you know, it takes money to make money. Sort of a built-in excuse. Uh, you should love your losses. A trader should love their losses. Uh, maybe I've gotten that correct, but in, it took the training course for me to understand that when you're a systematic trader, if you're, whatever your system produces, if you know, a successful system, you should really enjoy it. So if you're part of your trading system is losses or losing periods, embrace those losing periods, embrace the fact that you're following the system and you're doing the right thing versus uh, the momentary ups and downs of the markets. So this is kind of the real world dork challenge, right? 1983, they call you to Chicago. You're in Richmond, Virginia. You give, do you give notice yet to your, your CPA job? Oh, yeah. And people were very skeptical. My boss. Your my, dad. I'm curious what your dad had to say about it. Why are you leaving a great job here in Richmond and going to Chicago? Uh, I guess even I could see at that time uh, the vision that what this could turn into. And then I would just be a smarter person and a more knowledgeable person as it relates to trading. Because, like I said, a stockbroker maybe turns into being as much a sales job as anything else. And so I knew that if I had to become a stockbroker or a money manager, this would uh, the training that I would get from Richard Dennis would be invaluable. Now, Richard Dennis's reputation, and a lot of it may have been apocryphal or embellished, but that he turned ten dollars, uh, you know, pizza money essentially into tens of millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. Did you did you subscribe to that legend uh, as you were on this flight going to Chicago? Like, I'm actually going to meet the master. I did hook, line, and sinker. It was uh, wonderful. I thought it was the greatest opportunity ever. I had nothing but a smile on my face. I could not exactly articulate it to others, but I knew without a doubt that uh, uh, selling my microwave, selling my Chrysler LeBaron. Uh, Wait, hold up. You, you sold you sold this to move? Move to Chicago. I knew this was the, I knew, and then my two suitcases, I knew this. What was, was, the, what was the offer? The offer was for a year. It was for like six months. I'll um, pay you what? Five-year program, 
and it ended up lasting four years. So, uh, and a small salary. Uh, What's small? $25,000. Mm. So, yeah, but I was in a great city, uh, professional sports. Uh, the, Bull, the Bulls had just drafted Jordan. The Bears were going to win a Super Bowl in a year or so. Um, more movie theaters and restaurants in a two-block radius of my apartment than all of Richmond. So, had you ever been anywhere else outside of Virginia? Not a big city. Not New York or Chicago. Wow. And so take me to the first 24 hours. You land in, you land in O'Hare? Something like that, and then they they, they right. pick you up. They take you to a hotel. Is there any whining uh, and dining? Sure, I t- no. I, I'm sure I took a a taxi. And um, you're, are we talking about the interview? Yeah, I want to know what happened in the first day. Like you, you're you're a kid. You're 25. You're 26, and yeah. you're flown into Chicago. There's almost like this Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory element to it. It's you and f- how many other candidates? Uh, Forty people got an interview, I believe, out of a thousand resumes. So. Yeah, I'm very nervous. I am trying to cram into my brain everything that I know and have learned about trading as if I'm going to impress them or be able to tell them something versus a vessel that will absorb their information and be and believe what they have to say, uh, carry out the rules and the training and be uh, a, a servant to them uh, and be, you know, a, the type of trader that will help, will help them versus... Um, trying to impress them. So I go up to the interview and it's, uh, they just asked me a few questions. It's very low key. They asked me uh, how I did on the test. I said, I think I did really well on the test. And they said, yep, you did really well on the test. So I think some people they wanted to hire who had done well. Some people they wanted to hire, did, they wanted to hire people who did poorly, but had other things going for them. Were they screwing with your mind? Like, you know, one of those infamous Lehman brother interviews, sell me my tie or how do I open this window? You know, the legendary story that the kid ends up throwing a chair at the window because you can't open it. The answer is you can't open it. Did they do anything like that with you? Not at all. Totally great guys. Honest. Incredibly smart. Once again, just wanting to tilt the scale a little bit. Trading can be taught, but let's try to find people who can understand and absorb the information and be willing to actually do it. Um, So, like I said, they hired backgammon players, blackjack players, authors, uh, an accountant from Virginia, all kinds of people. And it, um, so I think it was fairly successful in the ability to train people how to trade. Um, certainly a great experience working there. And Now you got back on the flight thinking you'd have the, you had the gig? Well, I don't probably remember. I probably thought I might. It was probably a good chance. Certainly when they told me I did really well on the test, I thought, okay, I think this could be me. And they were going to whittle it down to how many from 40? 12. Wow. Yeah. So that's right. So at the end of the year, towards uh, no- October, November, they ended up calling me, and I did get a job, and it was 12 of us. You'd already quit your job just on the prospect of getting hired by these guys? No, no, no. I didn't quit until um, I got the job. and But I, pro- I already had the Dean Witter job. So I don't think I'd quit my accounting job or I told my boss that I was going to quit the accounting job. But um, then I had to call Dean Witter and say, I'm not coming to be a stockbroker. So that was Son, a- you'll never be anybody in this town. Or better, better like, son, you'll be nobody in this town. The South will rise again. No, none of that, none of that jazz. Wow, Jerry Parker. So uh, you got the gig. What happened? Did they send you a letter? Did they call you? Interesting. I don't remember. I don't have my letter. 
And I don't remember if it was a call. I just remember going to Chicago, once again, two suitcases, and somehow getting up there and finding a great apartment to live in. And um, life was great. Life was grand. Um, it was all, everything was ahead of me. And I knew it. It was just up to me to make the most of it. Uh, do you remember your first day in Chicago, your first week? Again, I'm thinking, you know, f- f- a kid from a small town, never really veered far from Virginia, suddenly put into the big money high life, I'm bright in, lights, big city. I was embracing uh, the big city and the opportunities. But as I told you earlier, I my first bus ride on a Chicago bus, I did see someone get their pocket picked and all this screaming and yelling on the bus, and I was like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? Maybe it was a metaphor. Maybe it was like, Jerry, if you don't watch yourself, you're going to get your pocket picked metaphorically. Exactly. Jerry, I'm so good. I'm so astute. (laughs) I mean, this and the socks and everything. Good stuff. You're listening to Full Disclosure. I'm Robin Farzad, and we are very pleased to be joined by Jerry Parker, the famous turtle trader, the guy who went from Uh, Really nothing and a dead-end job and answering that fateful ad in the Wall Street Journal in 1983 to three decades later, uh, uh, being a legend on Wall Street in many respects. Jerry, so you're there. You accept the job. It's a $25,000 a year job, but it's very much sink or swim. It's not like uh, you could just coast on this salary. You're going to be analyzed uh, constantly. When I read the book, it, it seems like they set you guys up in a boiler room type setting. Uh, you didn't have Bloomberg terminals or anything. Maybe you had Quotron machines, but you're given a million dollars, effectively real money. It's not funny money. And and let's see how you apply the the rules that we taught you in training in our course. That's right. After a two or three week, I don't remember, maybe two or three weeks of training in an offsite location, we were all ready to go, all set, systematic, trend following, follow the rules. Uh, at the Christmas party that year, 1983, right after the course, the training course, uh, one of the guys went around the party to ask all the new trainees um, the final uh, question. Here's the exam question, the final exam question. Um, if you hear that Rich's position is long soybeans, but uh, your rules tell you to go short soybeans, what do you do? Well, the answer is you go short soybeans. So we were told from the very beginning that. If you lose money by doing the right trades, by following the rules, then that'll be fine. But if you make money and you're not following the rules, then that could be trouble. So it was a very um, systematic approach where it demanded um, us understanding how the systems worked and making sure that we actually did the trades we were supposed to do. I'm suddenly thinking about the movie Reservoir Dogs. They give you code names and stuff like don't get to know each other socially. You're Mr. White. You're Mr. Pink. You do this. You do this. You're very mission-oriented. Yes or no, binary, black or white. Really, they, they were they trying to just beat out the individuality of, within all you guys? Like your preconceived notions mean nothing. Uh, Dennis is trying to prove a point that I can sculpt a perfect trader, a perfect machine from scratch. Uh, not really. I think that, once again, once you got the basics of the system and you were sort of told what works in the markets, how you should uh, look at the markets, what's possible, then I think their hope was that these 12 people would um, add some of their own experience and come up with some new ideas, new ways of doing things, quote-unquote, flair, that would actually enhance some of the things we were taught. So maybe Rich and Bill would learn some things or would get better ideas over using our experience. But I don't think that really panned out. I think that all of us being in the same room together, 
uh, trading together, listening to each other's trades, and talking. I think what happened was is that uh, everyone sort of figured out pretty quickly that it's probably best to don't stray too far from what we were taught. And so I think the environment itself wasn't that conducive to um, create creative thinking. And okay, so you have the basic system. What are you going to add to it? I think that happened once the program ended four years later, and we all went on our own, and we sort of had felt more freedom to, uh, okay, it's your own company now, do what you want to do. I remember the first time I sort of did a trade that wasn't maybe by the book with Chesapeake in 1988, I was sort of feeling like guilty, like, oh, man, I feel kind of guilty that maybe this Rich wouldn't approve of this trade. Whoa, whoa, whoa don't jump forward oh, to 1980. We're still in a Duran Duran, New Moon on Monday era, 1984. Yes. Uh, I might even play that song uh, to, to establish the scene. You're there in Chicago. You have, a, you have an apartment on the Gold Coast. You're in this boiler room type situation with a million dollars to play around. What happened to that million dollars during the course of, let's say, your first year in quote-unquote business, 84? So in 1984... Um, my performance was poor. I wasn't following the rules, and I think most people were doing much better than me. And the and so I had. Was there a daily profit and loss thing? Oh yeah. And after a couple of months, every day I would come in. My statement was minus two hundred thousand dollars. So it was very depressing and discouraging to look at that number all the time. So, but eventually, by the end of the year, I got it together and I finished the year. Um, Plus a little bit, not much. So, were you audited and mentored throughout? Would they call you in uh, these senior traders or managing directors or whatever they were? And like, kid, you're not cutting it, or kid, you know, uh, I don't know, take you out somewhere and make you watch a knife fight or something to kind of put the fear of God in you. Oh no! In fact, we didn't have a lot of interaction with Rich. Uh, he would come in every now and then, maybe once a quarter, once a month, to talk and just answer questions if we had any, but we had given, we were given pretty much uh, the proper and requisite training to be successful. And it was a little sink or swim, and we absolutely had a end-of-the-year review, and my review in the first year was you need to do much better uh, and quickly. And so I got it together, and I once again asked the critical question, what is the definition of doing better or doing sufficiently well? And his re- the response was, you should follow the rules and make as much as the markets will allow. So I felt like, okay, having gone through that valley experience of losing 20% and then finally making it all back and learning the lesson of what happens when you don't follow the rules, uh, from then on, I did a fairly good job of you know, making money and making the amount of the money that the, the systems and the markets uh, provided. So as best as you can, uh, explain for our, our diverse cross-section of an audience what following the rules meant, what what the toolbox was uh, for the turtle traders. I mean, you're not there buying and selling stocks effectively, right? This is esoteric stuff. Not really. It's uh, futures markets. And um, we were using a trend-following approach. and Which means what? Uh, buying buying high prices and selling lower prices. So once the, we'd have different uh, mechani- mechanisms that allow us to define if, the tr- if it was an uptrend or a downtrend, and we would hop on board the trend, going up or going down, and hold on to that position as long as we could until the market kind of reversed. Isn't it counterintuitive they tell you in investing that following the trend gets you slaughtered? I mean, people who follow mutual fund trends, the flavor of the month or the style of the month get their hearts broken? It depends upon uh, when you start following the trend. If you started following the stock trend like right now, and or versus starting in, 19, in 2009, I think that'd be problematic. But 
nobody can call uh, pick the bottoms or the tops. So it's always a little safer and a little more realistic to think uh, once you've seen a rally from the low or a, a break from the highs that maybe you can. Uh, that's a good indication that it's time to uh, change your position. Uh, when did you um, kind of have a moment where you had to realize, gosh, maybe I'm being too conservative or I can see myself being ousted from this program? I mean, the prospect is they send me back on a one-way ticket to Virginia. I have to hang my head in shame. I mean, I'm filling the blanks in for you, but there was certainly a more quotidian, mundane life awaiting you if you missed out on this, you know, this Willy Wonka golden rapper type opportunity. Very good point. Uh, yes, uh, but only in the sense that uh, internally I, you you have an opportunities in life, and you don't want to miss those opportunities. So it would have been a big regret, and maybe not monetarily wise, because I hadn't really fully experienced what was going to happen or what was even possible. But certainly, you didn't want to blow this experience. But almost from the very beginning, after a week or so of trading, uh, Rich called us all on the phone and said, "Well, and just to get a indication of how the first week or two went and." My response was, well, not that great. I didn't do that many trades. And so that was like the biggest violation ever. You didn't do all the trades you should have done. You've got to follow this system. But his response was, ah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Just do all the trades you're supposed to do. No big deal. Just start doing the trades. And that's the way he was, uh, his mentoring and his encouragement. But mentoring, it was at no point like, kid, I'm taking you out for a deep dish pizza and I'm going to reassure you. Let's go catch this kid, Michael Jordan. None of that. Really, it was you were left on your own. He was a busy man, and uh, one of the fun things we did once a year. There must have been a cold wind that would hit your face when you left work in the evenings with a... Well, the first year, yes, but then after that, it was great. But uh, once a year, Rich would invite us up to his office and uh, trade for a day. So we got to trade with him, have lunch with him, talk about trading, talk about politics. At the time, he was uh, really interested in politics, and I think still is, but uh, so I would talk to him about first hour or so about trading, and then the rest of the day about politics. So we did have some interaction, but uh, I am a very introverted person, so I, I had all the tools that I needed and all the support I needed to do well, and eventually I did. When did you break out? When did you first, uh, you know, f- experience that intoxication? You know, like, I'm thinking Bud Fox in Wall Street. You know, you could actually make money. You found the lever to pull. You found the secret. You found maybe the courage of your convictions. Oh, during the training course, it was amazing how smart these people were. It was a different level of intelligence. No, but when actually making money, when did that happen with the money that they gave you? You said you were treading water for some time. I'd say the first part of 1986, the markets were really good. Uh, Crude was on its way to $10 a barrel. We were all short. There was a lot of good trends. I think I left one Friday morning in February or March. Friday afternoon, I was I left the office. I was up probably 200%. My bonus was a million dollars, and I was pretty much on top of the world. This is Wait. as good as it's going to so get. So two years into this, you're now a millionaire? Uh, no, uh, I'd say um, 14 months. So very quickly, um, yeah, it was amazing feeling to, to feel like that you really – Knew what you were doing. Were you still taking the Pickpocket Express? <laughs> of course. I was always taking the bus. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was an amazing experience um, trading that money, being part of those markets and commodities, currencies, interest rates, and thankful that it was not stocks only. My vision was very broad from the very beginning and uh, understanding how to put together a portfolio of longs and shorts that, um, and a systematic approach that 
had a high degree of risk control and capital preservation, and at the same time, uh, able to make money and you know do it in kind of a risk-controlled way. So real time, there was an aha moment on the desk when you know you're talking about the bumper crop year of '86 at the beginning of '86. Did you have an epiphany where you said to yourself? Wow, I got it, Master. You know, Mr. Miyagi, you taught me. Wax the floor, sand on, sand off. Right? That 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 worked. And then maybe the 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 germ of a seed of I know how to print money now. Oh God, no. I never felt like I had it mastered. There was more to learn. There was evolving to take place. As the markets changed, we had to take the philosophies and principles we'd learned and change over time to and our my my, you know, Jerry, you're letting me down. I got to tell you, I wanted you to tell me about the, the $40,000 Rolex you bought, you know, the, the penthouse on the Gold Coast, you know, the chopper with Michael Jordan, and uh, none of that. No, I remember borrowing a couple of thousand dollars to make ends meet in 1984 from my credit union and thinking, no big deal, I will, I'm, you know, I'm going to be really rich. And of course, it didn't pan out in 84. It was not until 85 where I... Started performing a lot better and following the rules, and you know, having the similar performance like everyone else in the room. Wow! Um, so you're a millionaire by 1986, and so th- does this does this funny money matter? Even you know the seat, the money that they seated you with, the million dollars, or has it kind of broken to the point like these guys realize Dennis and crew, we've trained him, he's great, and we're going to start bringing him into the fold to manage real money. No, no. We weren't great. <laughs> we were trainees, and we would only hope to be as experienced and as good as uh, Rich and Bill. But the program was always just about trading a few million dollars of Rich's money. So it never was the uh, assets under management, the investment company, uh, the hedge fund to be was all in the distant future. And we were all very happy, very uh successful trading money for Rich and could never really envision uh, not trading for Rich when the program ended. It was a sad day. Uh, Even if I would have known that I could have made more money or I would make a lot more money or have a bigger business, um, just working with those guys and learning and being their friends and them being my friends or, or colleagues and associates, it was a lot more to life. And that was the most important thing to me at that, you know, at that time. And, um, just a, a magical period. I remember walking up and down the halls, going to the Coke machine or the candy machine, and I would just pass colleagues in the in the hallway, and I'd say, you know, this is like the greatest job of all time. This is the greatest period of our entire life, and it's true. It was, even though. Um, so, money money is great, but the intellectual uh, stimulation and the being a part of that group, you know was just an amazing experience. And it's, it's, it's the edge that the turtles ended up having in the way that you can uh, progress over in the markets. It's not just knowing where to buy, where to sell, how to do it, how to set up a portfolio. It's this mentoring over those four years. What, you know, anytime you had a misstep, it was just positive encouragement. Here's more money. You're doing the right thing. It only matters if you're doing the right thing. Um, trading is counterintuitive. It should be hard. It should be... Um, things you really don't like to do, but we support you, do the right thing, this is how you make money. And so just having that instilled in you, uh, that when over the years you have to deal with clients in your own business, employees, clients, the markets, um, you can call back that experience and have the wherewithal to continue doing what you know know to be right. What were the phone calls to mom and dad like then? Or when did you um, uh, reveal to your father that this bet had indeed paid off? 
you know, you had an aha moment, you really learned something out there, uh, putting it in terms that are understandable to your father. Well, I think, you know, I'd come come home for the holidays and we would talk and I think he was um, very impressed with the money and the... I mean, were you being ostentatious at all with the wealth? Were you helping them out? I was helping them out and I think he was... Um, so that was probably... What did you do? Send him checks or help pay off their loans or... Yeah, I would buy him a house or give him checks or... You bought your parents a house? Uh, I bought him a house once, yeah. Uh, just what, a couple of years into your internship there? No, I'd say after I got out and started my business. So yeah, they um, yeah, my my parents were very proud of me. They, th- mm, I was the first grandchild. I was the first child. Uh, I was I hung the moon. So um, yeah, I had a lot of positive feedback from my parents. Um, was spoiled first child. So where were you during the crash of '87? Oh man, '87. You see, we were making a lot of money. And trading for rich and um, short a few S&Ps that day. But then that night, the bonds, the bonds which had been in a downtrend, opened up a lot higher. So we got sort of crushed the night of that crash. Uh, but I think we ended up, we definitely ended up making money for the year. But that was kind of a, a crazy experience, sort of uh, living through the first time I'd ever heard of flight to quality. I'm a big fan of the technical trading, the systematic, the rules-based, uh, one of our famous lines was fade the fundamentals. The best trades are the trades where the fundamentals and the technicals disagree. But it probably would have been better for me to understand what uh, flight to quality meant. And sort of, uh, there are some times when you probably want to override your systematic approach and sort of say, hey, let's let's um, take some positions off. Let's be safe. Let's buy some bonds so we can live through this crazy period. Did Richard Dennis walk out on the floor and say, guys, this is the big one. This is what you've been waiting for. This is the biggest crash since uh, the crash of 29. Uh, because after all, you're talking about the importance of sticking it to a philosophy. And they they beat this into you guys. The rules matter. Um, there's a toolkit out there. And what better time? You know, you speak to institutional investors. They say, I really want to hire people who've experienced loss. And here you are. I mean, you experienced treading water and and being warned and kind of given probation at Richard Dennis's firm, but you never experienced a cataclysm like this? Well, for the most part, though, I was on the right side being short the S&P. But once again, I was on the wrong side of the interest rates that night and over the next few weeks. But uh, no, there was nothing other than I got a phone call saying, um, when are you going to get out of your bonds? The bonds are locked limit. You should probably think about getting out of your bonds. And uh, I had been lucky is that I got out of them that particular night. But look, it was it was a SEAL team approach. No one's going to come along and put their arm around you when you're in that cold water of the drawdown and the losing of the markets. Um, I remember one year, the British elections in 92, I believe, I got a phone call. I had the wrong, exactly wrong positions. The guilt, the short sterling, the FTSE were all massively higher. I'd been pretty, pretty well short. I think I lost 7% that day, that night. I went into the office two or three o'clock in the morning, liquidated my positions. And I remember driving back into my driveway at three or four o'clock in the morning going, don't be a baby, just suck it up. And this is the way the world works. And um, you know, stick to what you do and stick to what you know and preserve your capital. But uh, I think that's one of the things that Rich really had no, um, the only time I saw him get mad, I think, was 
in response to excuses being made um, about performance. There are, there are no excuses. You follow your system. There's no extenuating circumstances. Be calm. Be cold. Follow the rules. And when in doubt, reduce your positions. Reduce your risk. That's your ultimate way to save yourself. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jerry Parker, famed turtle trader, who answered that fateful ad in the Wall Street Journal in 1983. Uh, Jerry, so you wrote out the crash of 87. Um, When did you strike out on your own and create Chesapeake Capital? Uh, The turtle program ended at uh, 1988. So February 1988, I started Chesapeake with $2 million under management. Started it with what? What do you do? Like call, you, you decided you're moving back to Virginia, one. That's right. I moved to Virginia. I get my first client, and I have a track record. That's very important. I have the turtle track record. It's They believe it. It's uh, crazy numbers, 100% a year, 200% some years. You were able to come back and, 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 and say to kind of old money tobacco railroad types here in Richmond, like, I, I have a black box which will produce 100% a year return. This is pre-hedge you know hedge fund solicitation laws. I know I'm embellishing stuff, Jerry, but stay with me. I know this was client was in New York. I moved to Richmond and my client was in New York and for some reason they just had an entrepreneurial streak and they liked it and they said, "Okay, let's let's try it." And after about 2 or 3 months, um, I had lost 20% and I had had my second client of 500,000, so now it's at 2.5 million, but I lost 20% and after through March or April and the $2 million client left, so I was left with uh, $300,000. Isn't that all penny ante and, and de minimis after you've you know, managed $1 million, $2 million, $3, $4 million, even if that was funny money for Richard Dennis? Don't you want to go off and be at least like a $10 million kid? Oh, of course. I mean, uh, my whole plan was, I mean, I remember getting a vision I might get $5 million one of these days. I thought this would be just amazing if I could get $5 million. But as soon as we lost the client, the markets got great, and the grain, the drought of 1988 started, and we were off and running. And 88 was a great year, and we had about The two- drought of 88 obviously affecting uh, commodities markets, grain elevators, and everything. Uh, yeah, corn, beans, wheat, uh, that we were pretty heavy in those markets. And it could have been some other trends going on, too, but 88 turned out to be a pretty good year. And we were off and running. Uh, I think we probably made money like 10 years in a row. Never had a losing years for maybe... Nine or ten years, something like that. So, how do you go from effectively a million to two billion? I mean, what's that like? You're you're not a marketer. You say you're a very introverted person. You're walking around meeting with endowments and investment committees. I I, I imagine you know back then um, that it was a really different environment. That a reputation for alpha, like you be an alpha male, you and your whatever fifty percent a year returns. You, I'm talking about generically. The money is just not going to chase you. You actually have to go out and pound the pavement. You have to go to New York and talk to the managed futures departments at the brokerage firms. I remember walking around New York City and uh, going over to a payphone and, and calling Merrill Lynch and uh, wanting to speak to the director of the managed futures department. And I, the secretary answered the phone and I said, "Can I? I'm Jerry Parker. Can I speak to so-and-so? And she said, uh, no, he's busy. And I said, well, tell him I am a member of the turtle program, Richard Dennis turtle program. And she comes back on and she's laughing. She's like, yeah, come on up. He'll see you. Mm. So the turtle program, Richard Dennis, the track record, the story, um, you know, was an entree into a, meeting a lot of people and people are greedy. Um, people throw money at you when you do well. And like I said, we had a long track record of lots of ups and downs, big numbers, positive, big numbers, negative. 
but our approach had a tendency to, to make money almost annually. Uh, the trend-following approach with lots of different markets, longs and shorts, does have a tendency to have a good trailing 12-month rate of return. And so, even if we would have had a bad period or a bad month or two, we usually ended the year positive. So, that meant a lot. And it was okay to be small and growing, and the managed futures was just getting going, let's say, and people were trying to diversify away from John Henry and Campbell and some of the other big ones who preceded us. Now, when was the first time you actually heard the term uh, hedge fund? Mm, interesting. Hard to say. 90s, probably. Because this seems to fit the bill, even though you want to talk about it as, you know, call Merrill Lynch, give me your managed futures guy. You are selling something that zags when other things zig, right? It is a hedge. Ultimately, the appeal is that you're telling, you're saying that, listen, I can, I can give you an S&P type return with a fraction of the drawdowns, like a fraction of the pain. You don't have to shed as much stomach lining. Exactly. It's a little difficult to understand the trend following piece, the black box. It's uncomfortable. Uh, even though the on day one, we kind of uh, step into the arena with uh, the, the strategy that's the most hedged. I mean, every day we are long, short interest rates or currencies and commodities and equities. So we almost always have shorts and we almost always have something other than stocks on. <clears throat> so it is the perfect or the thing that's always hedging. But it's a little disconcerting that uh, you've got this short crude oil or long gold position or the Swiss franc or something like that that is not sort of norm. People prefer uh, st- stock only without the drawdowns, which is kind of sure. hard. And curiously, at the peak of equity culture in the late 90s, where people are talking about this at cocktail parties and S&P 500 growth at any price, Cisco, Pfizer, this, that, that, uh, Microsoft, how are you competing for mindshare when you're talking to uh, institutional purse string holders. Like, listen, I need your money because... It's difficult. Everybody, everyone is susceptible to, at one time, understanding the value of a diversifying investment, but the pressure can build over time if the diversifier underperforms too much. And we would literally have clients come to me and say, we made 90% in our NASDAQ, you're up 10, but you're costing me, look how much money you're costing me. The opportunity cost is huge here. And of course, after the fact, after the sell-off of 99 or the sell-off of 2008, you know, oh yeah, now I know why I'm supposed to have things in my portfolio that don't do well when equities do well. But this is the lesson that keeps having to be relearned. You really have to go in there, even with people who've experienced the 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, the muscle memory right now, when you go in and deal with investment committee people and um, fund managers and brokerage department heads who deal with your asset classes, you still have to convince them. I mean, do you find yourself saying, kid, you know, I was around when... Uh, when Alan Greenspan had to hike rates early in 94, I was around when Paul Volcker was doing what he did in 1981 and 82. Do you find that there's a lack of institutional memory out there? You know, you bring up a good point here, I think. I am really good at bringing up good points. Yeah. And it, Thank you. Kind of accidentally, you're, you're, that's when you're at your best. Um, <laughs> I think that if it's kind of a cliche in, the, in our niche of the business that we'd be a lot better off if we didn't really tell people how we make decisions and that we use these computers. I think if I sort of um, pretended that, uh, yes, you should give me your money because I've been managing money in these different markets for 30 years, and I have this experience and this knowledge, and I've lived through this, I think we would probably be 
be a more accepted investment versus, no, 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 I'm pretty much still doing the same thing, systematic, taking small losses, going with the trend, looking at the price only, uh, lose on... But I don't get it, Jerry. You don't have to tell them how the sausage is made. You could just tell them, I can provide you this kind of absolute return that's not correlated to the S&P 500 at a fraction of the risk. Is that Maybe that's my dumb yeah, read on it. I think that should be enough, and I think that's what I should have done versus trying to be too open and too transparent and trying to uh, make sure everyone knew what my worldview and philosophy on trading was. It just doesn't fit with what people think trading should be. Trading should be a rock star, uh, a genius person. I know a really smart person. I've given him my money. He knows how to navigate these markets. The last thing I think lots of people want is someone who sort of relies upon a black box computer, even though um, following these rules and being systematic and not trading emotionally, but with discipline uh, in the long run is, is a better choice. We should have pretended to be maybe to be something that we're, we're not. But I just found that impossible. So, Jerry, uh, you guys peaked in terms of assets under management uh, pre-financial crisis. You said it, in 2007, Chesapeake was at about $2 billion. Yes. You have a gorgeous office here in the Federal Reserve Building in Richmond. Um, you know, uh, And then over the last seven or eight years, you've had to downsize. The opportunity has changed a lot. Talk about the market experience, because it's, it's a bit counterintuitive. You would think that once bitten, twice shy, people would really come flocking to you saying that, wow, you guys posted good numbers in 2008. One, tell us what you did. Uh, two, that that would have been vindicated. I, I feel burnt, and I want to stay with you. Uh, you're right, Jerry. Here's my money. Yeah, fifteen. I think the industry in general did about fifteen percent in two thousand eight, and CTAs, and we did fifteen percent. And but, you did fifteen percent. I know you don't compare to the S and P five hundred, but the S and P that year was almost down forty percent. Look, it's easy when you follow the trends and you're willing to take a short position. Uh, the S and P hit a two hundred day low in January two thousand eight, so just going flat. When it hit that low, or it goes below the 200-day moving average. But weren't you in a great position after 2008 or in the spring of 2009 where people are panic selling to say, hey, hey, I was up 15%. I remember the headlines. It was like there was one stock in the S&P up in 2008. It was Campbell's Soup or something like that. Like we were all going to be in bread lines, so that, that presaged what was going on. So why weren't people shoveling money at you? I think initially 2009, uh, the CTA industry was gaining assets but then over time, as the stocks continue to do well, um, the QE and the uh, bond buy- The Federal Reserve's program. Right. That sort of uh, helped the stocks keep going. And the preferred investment, which is long only, don't do anything, just sit through the drawdowns or sit through the sell-offs, It'll, it comes back. This reinforced people's uh, idea that you can make money in the markets and the stocks with little effort and little cost. And the QE played havoc on, on, the, on half the markets that we trade. The currencies sort of flatlined. The commodities really flatlined. So there are a lot of distortions in this environment. Whatever Richard Dennis taught you guys in 83, 84, 85, 86, no one ever planned for a world where the Federal Reserve keeps interest rates at zero for seven years um, and uh, additionally throws $3.5 trillion at pumping up asset values. I mean, how do you fight the Fed? And we just didn't have a process that would allow us to say, oh, now things have changed, rather than have a diversified portfolio, currencies, commodities, stocks, interest rates. Let's go mostly stocks and some bonds, which were the perpetual <clears throat> in a bull market over those years. No, we were 50% commodities. We sold ourselves as, hey, um, 
we're a small CTA or a CTA who can trade lots of commodities, you should invest with us. Then over time, the commodities flatlined 9, uh, 10, 11, and 12 and didn't go anywhere, and half our portfolio was sort of stuck. And like I said earlier, <clears throat> clients can only hold on to an underperforming diversifier for so long. Um, I think it's important. It would have been better for us to sort of have a material position in the equities and a little bit more in the bonds to maybe not have an optimal portfolio for complementing your traditional portfolio, but it would have helped our businesses a little bit more to sort of say, hey, look, here's an investment that will complement a traditional portfolio, but it too stands on its own. And uh, in, in 2013, our diversified fund made 25%, but over 100% of that came from our stock index trading. So we picked up some nice. Uh, performance because we just follow the trends in the stocks. But we got criticism because, oh, now you're not providing the diversification that traditionally CTAs have provided because you're trading too many equities. And I'm like, yeah, but my business was torpedoed because I wasn't trading enough equities. I wasn't in the markets that were trending. So, How big is your firm now? Uh, 200 million. So the, these people were just pulling their money out. They were impatient as they saw that volatility was muted. They could get index-like returns. What what happened? Exactly the. Um, but from two billion to two hundred million, and you have not had a bad financial crisis. You actually have posted good records throughout, but not you know when when you when your bogey is a very subsidized asset inflated market with very muted volatility. I don't believe we've had a twenty percent correction since twenty eleven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, when people you know it's just difficult for people to have confidence. You could explain what's going on here lack of trends, we traded too many commodities. Uh, you understand how this works. I think that um, intellectually, yes, but politically, I think it's a difficult sell to keep these investments around uh, when the stocks are doing so well, and maybe the global macro hedge funds uh, are more correlated to the equities than the trend followers. And in fairness, it has been a brutal, brutal time for hedge funds, right? There's not much to hedge out there if everything is copacetic and hunky-dory. We need a big drawdown in the equities. <laughs> what you're trying to say, that's euphemism for is we need a huge correction. We need a crash. To prove your metal, you have to be able to go out there and say, see, had you had my product, had you had these uh, insurance plans, the puts and calls in place, we would have, you know, something like a 20% uh, fall would have been muted to maybe a 5 6 7%. Exactly. Remember 2008. People, I think, just lose. Um, they just don't remember how dangerous the markets can be. And not being fully diversified, not having shorts, um, not trading currencies, interest rates, commodities, is a dangerous thing. So when we, uh, if we ever have a equity drawdown, these particular strategies will show their metal once again. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. It's so euphemistic, drawdown, equity drawdown. Why don't you say evisceration? It would be nice. I think it's. Uh, <laughs> I feel like a a kneecapping. Yeah, well, it's true. The S and P lost thirty seven percent in two thousand eight, but it was down fifty percent. I one think point. from peak to trough, it was like fifty five percent or something. It's pretty maybe big. the Nasdaq down ninety percent. Well, Jerry Parker, in the few minutes we have left, um, I'd like you to bring it down to the the, the real main street level. Um, what would you advise to the mom and pop people out there listening? Um, maybe they do have access to your strategy versus you know out. There's a mutual fund out there. Uh, what is it called? 
Equinox Chesapeake. And you've licensed this. Anybody can go buy the Jerry Parker strategy. It's not like you need to be a, a hedge fund uh, client, a preferred 144A type. Anybody can go buy it? Yes, exactly. Anybody can buy the mutual funds. The liquid alternative mutual funds are out there, lots of CTAs and traders trading all these different markets with this systematic approach. Um, I think this is sort But of... outside of that, if I'm sitting next to you at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, I know you go to a lot of bar mitzvahs, Jerry, uh, what would be your advice to a mom and pop, a person who doesn't know what a turtle trader is? Like, what do I do? I've had my money in cash for the longest time. Oh, I don't know if the Fed's going to be hiking. What do you say to them? What's the best that a mom and pop could do? Put uh, a small amount of money or a half of your money or less than you probably think of your money in a professional trading and buy some liquid alternative mutual funds to go along with your traditional investments. Um, I think that's the most important thing. And is there a place that these people can go to? I mean, there there are a lot of people out there who it's it's kind of it's 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 bipolar, right? Either you're totally do it yourself and you trade too much and you reinvent the wheel too many times, or you're entirely in cash and you're like I'm either in risk or outside risk. Um, and you throw in the fact that the Federal Reserve has thrown trillions of dollars at the problem. We potentially have a bond bubble. There's a lot of paralysis right now. And this takes it back to 1983, 1984. Those rules that Richard Dennis taught you still hold? Oh, absolutely. Um, like I said, I think the holding period needs to be a little longer term now. And there's a few minor tweaks that we've done over the years. But the fundamental principles that we learned in 1983 are 100% determining our success or failure. And our performance has been great over the past couple of years. Um, so it seems to be working. Wow. And there you have it. Jerry Parker, the really successful turtle trader, plucked off the streets. Well, I won't say off the streets, but saved from being a uh, stocks and socks broker at Dean Witter in 1983 and goes off to become uh, one of the most famous investors and traders in his space. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Robin. Hey, how'd you make out today? How could you do this to us after everything we've done for you? Oh, see, I made Lewis a bet here. Lewis bet me that we couldn't both get rich and put you on the poorhouse at the same time. You didn't think we could do it. I won. I lost. One dollar. Thank you, Lewis. <laughs> Full Disclosure is on SoundCloud, iTunes. You can hear us on WRIR Wednesday mornings at 9 and early Sunday mornings. We are on Stitcher. Uh, gosh, what have I said in the past? CompuServe, Excited Home, Lycos. I mean, Webcrawler, AltaVista, The Works. I'm Robin Farzad. Full disclosure, we'll be back with you next week.